Hadil Kamal works as a surgeon at Al-Quds University in Ramallah. For years, Hadil has been lecturing and practicing in Palestine. I wanted to speak with her about the damage that Israel has done there in its most recent campaign of terror to the institutions for providing health in Palestine. We talk about this at the beginning of our conversation, and Hadil makes it clear that this is not a new phenomenon, that Israel has always targeted the provision of medical care in its bombardments. At the core of our conversation, though, is the question of how Palestine can be free, and how Hadil experiences everyday life in the context of Israel's illegal occupation. We also discuss the ways that Israel has codified its callous indifference to Palestinian life in laws that enshrine the expansion of settlements and Islamophobia as core parts of the Zionist nation-building project. October 7th and the coordinated attack on Israel by the paramilitary wings of Hamas, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine is a globally misunderstood event. This is largely because of the layers of propaganda and political polarization that are screening the reality on the ground from view. That event, with its deplorable acts of violence, should still be seen as a response to violent subjugation. As Hadil points out, Gaza is a concentration camp where human beings are denied rights and deemed disposable by an oppressive regime. The right to resist an occupying force is a human right, even if it's controversial to say so. Only 42 countries recognize the right to resist oppression, but since 2004, the African Union has identified the right to resist as a basic human right in the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. From everything that I've learned, read, and seen secondhand, those of us who have not experienced the violence of Israeli apartheid directly cannot legitimately condemn the right of Palestinians to resist this violence. Palestinians have, in the words of Andreas Mom, tried every conceivable form of resistance. They've tried peaceful marches in the Great March of Return in 2018, which only resulted in Israeli snipers killing 223 unarmed demonstrators. They've tried strikes and boycotts. They've tried writing poetry and posting on social media. They've tried throwing stones. They've tried diplomacy, including recognizing the state of Israel and giving it all it demands without getting anything back. They tried to go to court. They tried the international community endlessly. And yes, they have tried various forms of armed resistance. So what are the people supposed to do? When the IDF announced that it was launching a ground invasion of Gaza, it ordered a million people to evacuate, adding that they will, quote, be able to return to Gaza City only when another announcement permitting it is made. As Ian Parmeter told Al Jazeera, Israel is under no illusions that one million people can simply move within 24 hours. It's simply a warning that they're coming in. So now, one million Palestinians are faced with a petrifying situation. As Nabal Farsak, the spokesperson for the Palestinian Red Crescent in Gaza City expressed it, forget about food, forget about electricity, forget about fuel. The only concern now is just if you'll make it, if you're going to live. This tyranny is completely unacceptable. We should all be ashamed that it's gone on so long and that it's become apocalyptic. Hadil offers a critical analysis that affirms Noam Chomsky's point about how the tragedy of Palestine is that because it does not have significant wealth or power, much of the world does not regard it as worth worrying about. She also offers an extraordinary message of hope and resilience by emphasizing that Palestinian people continue to create and connect while devoting themselves to the preservation of Palestinian culture in an extremely hostile world. 
I think you're, you know, you're right to point out that it is a question of whether, you know, people are going to decide to be on the right side of history or not when it comes to the liberation of Palestine from this like oppressive force, um, this apartheid regime. Um, we hear frequently um, that it's it's complicated. In some sense, it's actually very uncomplicated. Yeah. Um, ta Coates pointed this out on Democracy Now!, for example, that, you know, if you're separating people on the basis of, you know, ethnicity and religion, that's actually not that complicated. Um, and I wondered if you at all wanted to kind of speak to that question of h- how the complicatedness of the conflict prevents some people from deciding to intervene or deciding to be on the right side of history. Imagine that we are talking about a country in Europe. So we're not talking about uh, Palestinians. The people who are undergoing this pain and this agony are citizens, for example, of Ukraine. Everybody was allowed to carry the flag of Ukraine. Everybody was allowed to call for uh, the citizens uh, and the people of Ukraine uh, uh, Europe cut off ties with Ukraine, like with, with Russia. Um, the media, uh, Rus- Russia Today, was banned in Europe, in, in Germany and in France. So why these double standards? Um, there was a video showing the, the stark double standards that, was, uh, that are held by uh, Ursula von der Leyen how she called out that bombing hospitals and cutting electricity and water are an absolute crime against humanity when she was talking about Ukraine. But when it happened to the Palestinians, she just simply closed her eyes and looked away. So um, if they deny the, um, the fact that this is simple occupation, then I just ask them to compare it to what is going on in the, the Ukraine. And then I expect, I, I hope that they look at it differently. But sometimes people are just so brainwashed that they cannot move out of this vicious cycle and change their mind. But um, I feel that the younger generation, uh, people that are like 25 years and older and younger, these people can be changed because they haven't been as indoctrinated as the older generation. And that fills me with hope. Yeah, um, I, I, I concur that like, that is a source of hope. Um, and, and I think it is important perhaps to realize that um, this campaign, this particular campaign of violence by Israel since October 7th, um, you know, it's unprecedented. It's discussed as unprecedented. There do seem to be, um, you know, a a certain, there seems to be a shift politically in which, um, you know, there, there are massive marches demanding peace and a ceasefire across the globe now. Um, And yet, you know, I find it hard to believe that in spite of so much solidarity with Palestine, there are still a huge number of politicians in settler colonial countries like the U.S. and Canada that just won't demand a ceasefire. Um, And, you know, I I wanted to ask you, like, why do you think there are still so many countries uh, that vocally 
support Israel's ongoing siege? Is it a question of, as you say, indoctrination? Um, why are even journalists uh, attached to repeating this line that Israel has a right to defend itself? And what is that language of Israel's right to defend itself, ignore, or disregard? On the last UN uh, General Council Assembly, 120 countries voted for a ceasefire. So they were supportive of the Palestinian plight for justice. And only 14 countries voted against the ceasefire. And 45 abstained. So, so it is not um, that the whole world is supportive uh, of Israel and anti-Palestine. It's the exact opposite. But you said a very important point, Scott, that it is the US and Canada that are very, that are ferociously, uh, not, as a, not as the people, I mean, the government, they are very supportive of Israel. Partly it is because um, USA and Canada were founded, unfortunately, on the same principle that Israel was founded on, which is land grab, settler colonialism, and native annihilation. So that is one point. Another point is that there is the issue of the Zionist evangelical Christians. In 2012, according to an economist article, there were 100 million people in America who were evangelical Christians. And these are pro-Israel and very Zionist because of their ideology. And they're very active in donating and collecting funds for Israel. That's point number two. Point number three is that these politicians are supported by people who are strongly tied to the Israeli lobby. So these factors together, they push the politicians towards this, um, this concept of defending Israel and repeating uh, a certain, uh, certain sentences like, the, Israel has the right to defend itself. Okay, let's just slightly take this sentence apart. For starters, According to international law, a country that is occupying another people does not have the right to defend itself. So Russia does not have the right to defend itself against Ukraine. The same thing applies here. Israel does not have the right to defend itself against the people in Palestine, sorry, in Gaza, the Palestinians in Gaza or in the West Bank. Because using this term immediately strips the right of Palestinians to resist occupation. So the term self-defense is not just a mere distraction. It has been heavily used in, um, in the media to push this narrative that it is actually um, the Israelis that are under attack. It's not, they just take it out of context. It's like as if everything started in early October this year or as the aggression has been ongoing for the past 75 years. So it wasn't only the Nakba, it was also the years after. So there was a massacre in Kufur Qasim in 1956. And there was also 1967, the uh, attack on the rest of the West Bank. So it's been ongoing. So the right for self-defense, like I said, just strips Palestinians from their legal right to resist occupation. I'd like also to add another note that uh, in 2009, a lady called Jennifer Mizrahi, 
she compiled a sort of dictionary called um, uh, let me let me just remember um, Project Israel. This handbook it guides uh, pro-Israel uh, propagandists and lobbyists how to argue and debate online in order to gloss over the horrific uh, acts that Israel does in um, in Palestine. So. So they love the term right to self-defense. They also use terms like incursion instead of attack. So there, if there is an attack by Israeli soldiers on a Palestinian village, it's called an incursion, which is like the more soft term to describe the horrific act that the Israeli army is doing. And there are also many examples. So they would use the term clashes to describe when uh, the Israeli army people who are praying in, inside the mosque. So there were clashes where, of course, it was an attack. So these are a few examples that come to, that come to mind. Now, the whole notion that Israel has the right to self-defense is completely misleading, and it strips the Palestinians from their legal right to resist occupation. Since October 7th, um, Israel has gradually destroyed the health system in Gaza, um, you know, dozens of hospitals have been shut down. There was the Al-Ali uh, hospital massacre on October 17th, um, where like Israel bombed a hospital where displaced Gazans were, were sheltering. And there was like dispute, you know, disputed causality or responsibility. Uh, but clearly that's the case. Uh, more than 100 medical facilities are out of service. They bombed ambulances um, and killed medical workers. And like on top of all that carnage, um, the international community has warned that like an epidemic wave could be happening too. Um, so like it's devastating, but I wondered if you could just like express to people how costly it is for this bombardment to attack specifically the providing of medical care. Well, um, I'd like to start off by pointing out that Israel has always targeted hospitals and schools, as a mm. matter of fact. I did a little research. Um, Israel not only targeted schools in Palestine, Israel also targeted schools in Lebanon. So in 1996, Israel bombed a UNIFIL school mm. where around, I, I don't know, don't quote me on the number, maybe around mm -hmm. 100 children were killed. In 1970, Israel bombed an elementary school in Egypt. Mm. Also under the pretext that um, terrorists were hiding there. And hospitals also have been bombed. This was documented by my friend Mike Lodz when he was working here uh, in, in Palestine. So the bombing of schools and hospitals, this is not new. And uh, because Israel has been uh, bomb uh, like attacking civilians for so long, the need for hospitals and good infrastructure for hospitals has been extremely important. That's one point. Second point is Gazans cannot leave uh, Gaza with ease because Israel controls who goes in and who goes out, what goes in and what goes out as well. So Gazans had to build their own hospitals with all the facilities in order to be able to provide for the people of Gaza. Um, of course, from the names that I that are 
of these hospitals. So it's the Indonesian hospital, which means that most of the donations came from Indonesia. Al-Ahli Hospital, this was funded by a church, by the Baptist church. So most of these hospitals were donations. And this is where I ask, why aren't the donors mad and upset? Mm-hmm. Uh, just um, uh, a month ago, there was this village in southern uh, Palestine, in southern West Bank. Um, it was under attack by Israeli settlers that were back, that were supported by the Israeli army, and they dismantled the school that was in that village, in Masafir Yatta, as a matter of fact. And this school was built by funds from the European Union, and it, it had this 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 car where it's this where it said this place was funded by the European Union. So I'm just wondering why doesn't the European Union hold Israel uh, uh, for for I mean, what for what they're doing? I mean, they're mm-hmm. taking apart this school, and this was done by European funded money. Mm. Yeah, I've I've heard you know Judith Butler, who's a you know a well-known American like academic philosopher um, and Jewish voice for peace, um, has talked with me about this on the podcast that um, the repeated destruction of Gaza is also kind of horrifyingly itself like an industry, right? Like that exactly. you know Ga- Gaza has been reduced to rubble yet again um, and will be rebuilt with this kind of international um, funding. Why is it the case that, you know, Naomi Klein and others would say it's just disaster capitalism, that it's actually like a certain level of, you know, to speak cynically, like almost like opportunistic investment in rebuilding from destruction again and again. Um, it's it's yeah, that's that's a horrifying element of it, that the infrastructure being destroyed is in a certain sense good for parts of the global economy that develop that. You know what I mean? Like, like the benefit from being able to invest in that rebuilding. Well said, Scott. And you also lead me to the next thought, which, which is Israel manufactures weapons that have been tried and tested on civilians, on Palestinians. So in the last uh, attack on the hospital, when Dr. Ghassan Abusitte was still there, he described wounds he had never seen before, mm. like where the flesh is cut up but not on the areas that are weak, such as in the joints. So it was like in the middle of the arm or in the middle of the thigh, as if there's like this sharp razor blade that just cuts through the flesh. And this is a new form of weapon that he had never seen before. The types of burns that he saw on the children, it was like he had never seen this type of burns before. So the kinds of weapons that Israel was using on the people in Gaza was Mm -hmm. like a ground so when they sell their weapons it's actually tried and tested same thing goes for drones that they use to disperse demonstrators they have built drones that are strong enough to carry four gas tear gas canisters that are fired into the people one of my friends took part she's not the youngest so she took part she used to take part in the uh, first intifada which was in the early 80s mm-hmm. and she said that this tear gas burns inside your ears and inside your nose like never before and nothing you do can help to stop this burning so even things that are not uh, uh, lethal they are also trying them and testing them on the demonstrators in the west bank mm. so it's not just only the the industry is profiting from 
the destruction of Gaza. It's also the industry, uh, the war industry is profiting from killing the people of Gaza. Yeah, it's this despicable laboratory for like dehumanization, it feels like. And, okay. you know, yeah, like uh, this is the this is sort of the it feels like the difference this time is the the obviousness of the genocidal nature of the violence. Um, you know, the, the use of the term genocide to describe what Israel is doing is is still somehow controversial in some parts like of the west especially but like there have been clear statements by israeli ministers um that you know just outline quite explicitly um that this is in a very real sense the goal um and it sounds like i mean these forms of of violence really are like predicated on dehumanizing the the so-called enemy which is which is this concentration of people that you've rendered into, um, you know, a uh, bare life, uh, um, you know, life somehow not worth living. Can you, I mean, can you give us a sense, I guess, because like, there is no question in my mind that this constitutes genocide, but it's somehow still disputed. Um, can you sort of give us a sense of whether you see resistance to the campaign of genocidal violence at all within like Israel, for example, or these blocks of power where, you know, we, we're supposed to assume that there's somehow like univocal universal support. I mean, you know, there are certainly um, Jews who are calling for peace. We're stating unequivocally that their Jewishness is not dependent on the destruction of Palestine and Palestinian life. Are you able to find solidarity, I guess, with Jewish people, for example, who are anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist. Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack here, Scott. So let me start with, um, first of all, um, I mean, there is solidarity all over the world, mm -hmm. from grassroots mm -hmm. levels to Jewish Voices for Peace to uh, Code Pink. They've always been vocal about supporting Palestine. But... I, I think this time it's different because the genocide is being broadcast live across the social media platforms. I mean, like there are these young journalists that are showing us what is going on in real time and people are recording this and they're being moved. Um, for example, so many people were like transformed to become pro-Palestinian once they saw the video of the dad, of the father carrying what was left of his children in plastic bags. I mean, like, I think that was mind blowing. Or mm -hmm. the, the, the recent video of that um, uh, father cuddling the daughter with the two bunny, did you see that video? Uh, Where she yeah, was, yeah. was just holding her. And um, I think that was transforming for many people. I hope that this has changed people, let's say, in quotes, beyond repair, that they will mm. always be pro-Palestinian and never change their mind because the plight of Palestinian people is just. I mean, okay, Israel is backed by the Israeli lobby and the Israeli lobby has very strong ties with Western uh, media. Mm -hmm. And thus the media will use 
the uh, narrative that is dictated by the Israeli lobby. They will use these words, they will use clashes, uh, incursion, uh, in order to gloss over the horrific fact, what uh, facts that are that Israel is actually doing on the ground, mm-hmm. um, they will dehumanize Palestinian lives. BBC just two weeks ago, as a matter of fact, brought this headline where so and so many Israelis were killed, and so and so many Palestinians died. So right. Palestinians die, and Israelis are killed. And then there are these interviews on Fox News, where they bring the families of Israeli, uh, Israelis who, who were killed. And then, you know, what they liked and how they loved and what were, their characters were like. And Palestinians are just numbers. Mm-hmm. So the media just pushes in the direction of dehumanizing Palestinians. And actually, um, Israeli leaders said it out loud on TV. Palestinians are the sons of the darkness. Palestinians are human animals. And I do hope that this is taken uh, to court and that that they should mark their words and be careful about what they say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It should matter. I mean, it should matter. Um, it, it It ought to have implications within international law. Being just so explicit um about this like annihilationist uh policy you know that should have repercussions um and and yet you know it it still is the case i think that the what you describe which is the kind of rendering of palestinians into just like mere numbers serves in many ways this like campaign of of like genocidal violence israel is still disputing the number of dead but Nonetheless, like the the numbers don't lie, like one in 200 Palestinians have been uh, Gazans have been killed, four in five have been displaced. Right. So, I mean, there's this attempt by Israel to just like vehemently deny the material reality um, on the ground and the and the and the suffering that they're causing. Do you feel like it is part of just a kind of propaganda campaign to do that? Is it that straightforward? And do you think that propaganda campaign of just like denying and disputing is is faltering uh, in the world, at least outside of Israel? Um, well, definitely the tide is changing. Mm-hmm. And there are in the um, whole story of uh, Israel being the only self-proclaimed democracy in the Middle East. The cracks are showing in the Mm. inconsistency of uh, Israeli standards. So people know, they now know of the uh, unjust laws that are uh, the basis of uh, the state of Israel. So for example, in 2018, Israel uh, approved a law that is called the nation-state law. It has three uh, major uh, terms. The first one is that self-determination is only the right of Jews in Israel. Mm. Number Mm. two, building settlements is a fundamental basis of Israel. And number three, Hebrew is the only official language of Israel, and this instantly renders Arabic to a sort of, quote-unquote, special status. Although 
20%, over 20% of the people living in the state of Israel speak Arabic. Mm. So the whole fundament, the whole basis upon which Israel was founded is starting to reveal to the world how racist it actually is. And anyway, um, Israel was based on denying and lying. So we could start off as early as the early 1940s. Palestine was a barren land with with no uh, with no culture. That that's not true. Right. Uh, um, uh, Palestine was without people for people without land. Palestinians have been around for hundreds of years. Um, when uh, the Swedish uh, uh, Count Volker Bernadotte was assassinated, Israel denied, and then turns out they admitted it. Okay, we the Stern uh, the terrorist group, they assassinated him. So Israel has a very long history in lying and denying uh, acts of terror that they have done. So it's not surprising that they now also deny. Uh, perpetuating this genocide. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to gesture back to what you're saying, like the reason why you have countries like the United States and Canada aligning still with Israel is that fact of being founded in the same kind of settler colonial violence. I think you're, you're right to like point to that and say like these nations constitute the sort of, you know, a history of, of creating uh, um, you know, what Benedict Anderson called an imagined community around really like being accomplices to this like original violence. And and in fact, in the case of uh, these these nations, like a continued um, violence. And, and part of that violence, as you just said, is like saying there was nothing here before that it was terra nullius. There was nothing here. Um, and and so, yeah, like. Um, you know, here in the country currently called Canada, we have um, an indigenous uh, activist and and author uh, named Leanne Betasamosaki Simpson. Yes, uh, you know, yeah. You know who's brilliant and and who talks about like um, various forms of indigenous resistance in the country. You know, she went on the um, the Red Nation podcast and talked about how like October seventh. Yeah. Uh, showed in some ways that Israel, despite being an oppressive colonial power that like maintains this apartheid regime through through military force and this kind of you know carceral infrastructure, yeah. like mm-hmm. they're not they're not invulnerable, right? Um, yeah. And Michael Hart kind of said the same thing that October seventh could be thought of as like a prison rebellion, uh, in a sense, you know. So like it's it's clear obviously that October seventh radicalized Benjamin Netanyahu's already like ultra far right government has allowed, you know, his government to adopt this strategy of annihilation and displacement against Palestine. But would you like, this is a tough question, I suppose, but would you say that the attack by Hamas galvanized Palestinians at all, (laughs) or was it mostly met with like other kinds of political, ethical and like emotional responses? Well, I'd like to start by saying that describing what happened in Gaza, that it is a prison rebellion, I think it's a very descriptive term. And also calling Gaza a prison, I think, is unjust. I'm going to quote Norman Finkelstein in his uh, latest interview with Pierce Morgan. 
it is a concentration camp. Israel has turned Gaza into a ghetto. Okay. You see, it started in 2005 when Israel withdrew unilaterally from Gaza. Israel maintained a very tight grip on the borders of Gaza, controlling who went in, who went out, and what went in and what went out. When in 2006, the elections did not go according to Israel's plan, Israel decided to turn this grip into a full-blown siege. Mm. Dov Weissglass, back then the advisor to the prime minister of Israel, said that they will put the people of Gaza on a strict diet, but they will not let them die of hunger. So this just gives you an idea of how condescending and how demeaning the Israel government looks at the Palestinians. So, and I don't think that what happened in early October, that it radicalized Netanyahu's government, because it was already extremely radicalized. For example, Smotrich, the uh, Minister of Finance, he wrote in 2017 an article where he gave the Palestinians of the West Bank three options. One, they're allowed to immigrate, leave their life, their land, their house, everything behind and just leave. Option B, they can accept to settle under Israeli law as second degree citizens. And their third option is to die. And that was in 2017. Right. Itamar Ben-Gvir, who was not drafted in the army because of his extremist views, and now he is a minister with Netanyahu's government. He said earlier this year, before the start of what happened in October, he said that his right to move inside the West Bank was more important than the right of Palestinians to move. So I don't think that the government of Netanyahu was waiting for anything in order to become more radicalized. That's but point, did yeah. this, did what happened galvanize the Palestinians? Oh, yes, it definitely did. It galvanized the people all over the world. I mean, like every corner of the world was calling out for the justice of Palestinians. I mean, this is, I, I never saw this coming, honestly. Right. So um, the social media has become the voice of those who have been brushed aside and silenced for so long. Yeah, I mean, that's a powerful statement, and it shouldn't be controversial to say that that's true. You know, that's just the kind of political reality uh, that exists. Um, and that political reality has a lot to do, I think, with, as you say, like media, communication, like how reality is shaped in people's minds by um, mediation and representation. And so, you know, I guess I wanted to ask you the question of like, from your perspective, who is speaking for Palestine and for Palestinians right now? You know, you've got this huge spike in aggression, as you rightly point out, not necessarily like a radicalization, maybe an escalation, but not a radical radicalization of that government. Um, since then, that that kind of moment of October 7th, there has been uh, obviously massive protests, but there seems to be this kind of um, like a really distressing petering out of concern within Western media, um, you know, even as the violence continues. And I wondered if you could share your thoughts on 
um, whether like the lack of Palestinian voices uh, in the media conversation is maybe contributing to this cycle where like Israel is permitted to use the actions of Hamas as this justification for its campaign of destruction. Um, do you think that exclusion of Palestinians from the from the picture, as it were, um, is is part of the perpetuation of the violence? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. So um, let me start by saying that based on the fact that we know that Western media is controlled by the Israel lobby. Robert Fisk wrote about this, uh, John Mersheimer, Chris Hedges. This has been documented. Mm -hmm. So by default, the Israeli narrative will be pushed forward and it will be glossed over and Palestinian voices will be silenced or brought up very rarely and just in brief uh, instances and the whole picture will not be drawn clearly for the Western media, for the Western audience to understand the full picture. That's number one. Number two, when, this, uh, when the Palestinian voices are brought forward, they are usually uh, attacked by anti uh, Palestinian uh, figures, and they're not given the chance to voice their opinion and the facts properly. Mm -hmm. Now, with regard to your question, who speaks for Palestine? Unfortunately, there has been a split between the leadership in the West Bank and the leadership in Gaza, but there are the voices in Palestine are calling for a united leadership mm -hmm. that will prepare the ground for elections that have been postponed for much too long. And hopefully these elections will produce uh, a leadership that will speak for Palestine and the Palestinian rights and pave the way for justice for Palestinians. There's clearly a lot of, um, like I hear a lot of hope in your voice in terms of like the promises of, of democracy. But, you know, on that point, um, you know, I was reading Perry Anderson's uh, a long article, The House of Zion, where he talks mm -hmm. about, you know, like the, how the, the tragedy, people often refer to like the tragedy of Palestine, which I think you would sort of push, push back against on some level, like, and say like, it's um, the term you use, for example, the, that it's unjust, right, to talk about the tragedy. But, you know, his, his claim is that the tragedy of Palestine's position is that it's kind of stranded in the so-called Arab world, uh, where, you know, he writes, Palestinian democracy is unlikely in a sea of despotism, right? Yeah. In other words, Palestine can't survive as a democratic state because none of its potential allies are democracies. And he, mm -hmm. he says that, you know, Israel is not going to stop until it is, quote, confronted with a real threat in the Middle East. There are also people like Noam Chomsky who argue that the real tragedy is that because Palestine doesn't have significant wealth or power, a lot of the world doesn't regard it as worth worrying about, basically. Um, mm -hmm. Both of these arguments feel unjust to me, like, the, and ignore yeah. the roots of the violence in racism to some extent. Like, that's, that's my reading anyway. But I'm wondering, you know, what you think they might not understand about the situation, maybe what you think they get right, I don't know. But, like, where is Palestine positioned in relation to these bigger geopolitical and, like, economic forces this is a very important question, Scott. Um, first of all, I'd like to disagree 
with Perry. Mm-hmm. Arabs did not abandon Palestine. Their governments may have gone for normalization, but the people, Israel can try as hard as they want, but they have not broken through to the people in the Arab countries. Mm. Hands down. And I also don't think that Palestine cannot establish a democratic country because their allies are so-called undemocratic. I think there are many other factors that play that play against uh, Palestinians being able to establish a country to start off with. But I think that Noam Chomsky got it right. Um, Palestine is not a country of wealth, like you said, and that's why it might not be as important to the West. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad that uh, that humanity is measured by the importance and the wealth of certain countries. Mm-hmm. I feel that Israel was established by the West in the Middle East in order to establish an ally right there where the old Silk Road was. Mm-hmm. And uh, an ally for the West, which, which is close to the Suez Canal. And this is the strength of, um, of Israel. It is geopolitically located in a very sensitive area, which is important to the West. Biden once said that Israel is a very useful country. And if it hadn't been created, he would have created an Israel. Mm-hmm. But all that aside, in the end, Palestinians have the higher moral ground. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that eventually this is where things will boil down to. Yeah, I, I hope, you know, like I share this sense that it must be the that, that must be true, right? That the that history must bend toward justice. Um, you know, this is this is a, you know, it, it's a hard it's a hard thing to insist upon in this current moment of so much sort of cynicism and fatalism um, that these great powers that, that have amassed so much military might uh, will just go on indefinitely, um, you know, controlling the like fate of the globe. But this is something uh, that Maka Gomez Barris told me recently on the podcast that it's not just Gaza. It's really a battle for like the planet that we're talking yeah. about. You yes. know, I, I recently read a wonderful tweet that says people who chant for the justice for Palestine also chant for the just ch- justice in Congo, in Sudan. Mm-hmm. So it's the plight of all oppressed people. And I thought that was wonderful because yeah, yeah. in order to have freedom for one oppressed people, we have to think of all the oppressed people. Yeah. And it's, it's absolutely true. And, and like you think about somebody like Greta Thunberg, maybe the world's most famous climate activist being sort of spurned by, um, you know, German, in particular, German climate activists for saying no climate action on occupied land. Like that's all she said was no, there is no climate action on occupied land. Um, the book, there's a book called Palestine Speaks that I've been reading. And, yes. you know, it starts with the statement that, quote, hope flourishes right alongside stark cynicism and despair in Palestine. Um, but that, but the, there is, of course, a feeling of insecurity 
that permeates nearly every facet of Palestinian society. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I get a sense, I already get a sense of where you situate yourself on the spectrum of like hope and insecurity, but because of the kind of work that you do, I wanted to ask like, you know, whether it, it does shift day to day, um, you know, de- depending on what you face and kind of what keeps you going in the work that you do. Well, um, I am a gum surgeon and I teach at Al-Quds University, uh, the dental school there. Um, in order to reach Abu Dhis, where the university is situated, I have to drive outside Ramallah. I have to go through a military checkpoint. Sometimes this checkpoint is closed, so I have to circumvent this checkpoint by driving through villages and through dirt roads. And then, of course, it becomes a very long way. But um, I keep myself hopeful through listening to podcasts. So um, you get new ideas and you keep yourself away from thinking, you know, the negative thoughts. Is it worth it? Should I, should I keep doing this? Why am I doing this? But the other day I had a discussion with my 16-year-old. She had seen a, a girl her age weeping over the body of her mother. And of course, that, that really cut deep. And then she asked me, Mom, why did you have me here in Palestine? Why can't we just live somewhere else? Why was I born into this uh, obligation to speak for Palestine? So I said, the difference between humans and animals is that we all eat and reproduce and sleep, but humans have a cause to fight for. So even if we were living outside Palestine, I would demand of you and ask of you to have a cause that you're fighting for, whether it's um, uh, against the ozone, uh, the destruction of the ozone layer, whether it's for animal shelters, whether it's for children with disabilities. But every person has to have a cause that you you devote some time to uh, defend and protect. And I think that... um, as Palestinians, we have the moral obligation to stay positive and keep going. Because in the end, I mean, history has shown that every nation will rise and then eventually fall. And in the meantime, we have to stay strong, positive, educated, and educate those around us. So this is really what keeps me going. When I go to university, I also talk to my students and you hear these stories of resilience and strength where um, I have students whose parents are, um, are farmers who have herds of sheep and how the mother milks the sheep in the morning and then sells the milk in order to be able to provide for her daughter in order to go to school, mm. to go to dental school. So it's all these little stories that give you hope and keep you going. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely incredible um, and has left me a little speechless. You know, I'm um, really interested to hear about like 
the work that you do in more detail. And I think people need to understand life in Palestine, your daughter thinking about like, what does it mean for me to be born here and have to speak for, um, you know, uh, the people that I care about my community. Um, you know, those are the things that I think perform the important work of like humanizing folks there. You know, Edward Said, the Palestinian activist and author, yeah. talked a lot about how like the predominant mood of the so-called Arab world is, of course, secular. Right. Like so the kind of Orientalist projection that the West does, it's like so yeah. unjust. Um, but, you know, um, in the West Bank, you face, as you described, like this policed mobility uh, there are more mm -hmm. than 500 checkpoints and roadblocks. Um, you know, this is something that I don't think people can necessarily wrap their heads around until they like live it or see it. Um, yeah. So I just, you know, wondered if you could go into more detail at all about like what a typical day is like for you, if you wanted to provide any more um, around that. And, and I suppose in terms of like the comparison between this moment of like violent, mm -hmm attack, not incursion, but a violent attack, how is that different from the, the everyday life of, of occupation otherwise? So for starters, I'm a working mom, just like right. around the world. I nag in the morning so that the girls get ready in time for school. And in the afternoon, I am driving them around to their after-school activities. So it's flute for one girl, piano for the other, and then there is swimming training for one girl and karate training for the other. It's just like any family around the world. It is just upon moving outside Ramallah that the scenery changes. You see, Ramallah, where, where I live, um, is according to the Oslo Agreement, so-called Area A. This means that Israel has no right to enter these areas. Nonetheless, Israel does perform uh, raids, or according to their terminology, incursions, where they go inside, into Ramallah and they arrest Palestinians. They take them, usually at night, uh, blindfolded and usually barefoot, and they don't notify their uh, family members where they're taking them from. They also um, uh, invade uh, organizations, uh, and confiscate their uh, material and their equipment. So just a few weeks ago, they raided the um, room of the um, school council, the student council at Bizet University. They just barged into their room. They confiscated their laptops and all the reading material that these students had stored inside the university. So this is the norm mm -hmm. in Ramallah. But this is not even the worst part. Other parts in the West Bank, they feel the real brunt of the Israeli occupation. So there are these um, villages in the southern part of West Bank. For example, Masafriyatta, they have had daily uh, attacks by um, Israeli settlers that are protected by the Israeli army. And there are also the refugee camps where there are every night there are raids by the Israeli army into that camp where they arrest people, take them and uh, into the Israeli military courts. Mm -hmm. So in the cities per se, we just have our normal life. Like mm -hmm. any, we have restaurants, we have cafes, we come and go 
as we please, but, but once we want to move outside the city, it is severely restricted. Right. And like you said, the West Bank is riddled with uh, roadblocks and checkpoints that that uh, really control our movement. Mm-hmm. I haven't been able to reach the university since uh, early October. You, you touched on something that um, you know leads me to kind of ask this again, like obviously difficult question, but like I just want to kind of yeah. underline the thing that you that you're saying that um, you know uh, the the point is when it comes to like freedom yeah. to the point of Pal- you know achieving Palestinian liberation is so that people can just like go about their day. But yeah, you know, it was reported by the Guardian that um, Hamas tried to negotiate a transfer of hostages, right? That's that's Uh, correct. With Netanyahu's government in exchange for just like stopping the bombardment, right? Ceasing hostilities. Uh, He apparently rejected that deal and just like Mm -hmm. decided instead to carry out this campaign of terror. Um, So, you know, you mentioned that Israel will just like raid and and extrajudiciously, let's say, like, you know, take hostages themselves. I wondered if you could kind of help listeners understand how um, hostages in this current moment are being used um, for the purpose of of carrying out this violent campaign. I mean, and, and also if you could speak to just like how like concern over the well-being and freedom of hostages is being used by Israel, why the world doesn't seem to care in the same way about the many people who are imprisoned by the state of Israel? Okay, so let me start off by telling the listeners that before the beginning of October, there were around 5,000 Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli jails. And for those who do not know, Palestinians are kept in military jails and they are tried in military courts and judged by military officers. So the whole setup is already going straight towards uh, prohibiting Palestinians from getting fair and just trials. Mm -hmm. I have a very recent and uh, very raw uh, experience that I'd like to share with you and the listeners. Last year, a colleague of my daughter was arrested from his house. Shadi Khouri was 16 mm. when he was mm-hmm. taken from his parents' house in East Jerusalem. Shadi Khouri is a Christian Palestinian. And I'm intentionally mentioning his religion right here because sometimes the media tries to portray, to portray the, uh, the ongoing aggression of Israel against the Palestinians as if it's a clash of religions. And that is not true. Christian Palestinians suffer just as much at the hand of Israeli oppression, just as much as Muslim Palestinians. So now the 16-year-old boy was taken from his home in the middle of the night. He was beaten on his face and he bled. The photos that were shared by his parents show the trail of blood from his room all the way down to the street where he was taken barefoot without notifying his parents where he was taken. And he was interrogated without the presence of neither his parents nor his lawyer. Of course, his room was literally turned upside down. The closet was completely thrown on the floor. His desk was trashed. So 
I mean, Shadi was lucky. Mm-hmm. After 40 days without trial, he was sent home and sent to, sentenced to home arrest. And he had to spend the rest of the year at home. He couldn't reach school. Unfortunately, other children are not as lucky as Shadi. For example, Ahmed Manasra was 13 years old when he was involved in a stabbing incident. Right then, he was run over by an Israeli settler. And there are videos that went viral of this 13-year-old boy lying bleeding on the ground, being taunted by Israeli settlers. Then Ahmad was dragged with his bandages still on, dragged, dragged to court. Now, this is a very important point. His trial was postponed again and again and again until he turned 15. Why is that? Because according to Israeli law, Palestinians are treated like adults once they reach the age of 15. Mm. Then, so when he turned 15, Ahmed Manasra was sentenced to, uh, to solitary confinement. Now, Ahmed is 21 years old and he suffers from schizophrenia due to the harsh treatment by the Israeli uh, military courts. These are two examples of children in Israeli jails. It's worth mentioning as well that from these 5,000 Palestinian political prisoners, there are around 1,000 that undergo something that is called administrative detention. Administrative detention is when Israel arrests Palestinians and puts them in jail and does not charge them or take them to court. So they are held without any charge. Mm -hmm. And this administrative detention can be renewed indefinitely. Mm -hmm. For six months, in one shot, it can be renewed indefinitely. Many Palestinians protest this administrative detention by going on hunger strikes. Right. And this, this summer, one Palestinian actually died after 86 days of hunger strike. 86 days. 86 days of hunger strike protesting his detention. Right. Now, you asked about the well-being of the Israeli hostages. Hmm. Actually, there was a video that was not shown by the BBC. It was cut short. It showed the beginning of the aggression on Gaza. Two old ladies were set free. They were returned to Israel. Hmm. And once they were handed over to the Israeli uh, military, they turned around to shake hands with their Palestinian captors. Mm-hmm. Also, Gilad Shalit, the, the Israeli soldier who was taken in 2005, he also spoke about how his captors played chess and checkers with him. So you can see the stark contrast. The question is, why doesn't the world care so much about the Palestinian prisoners? Well, like we said, and like you said as well, uh, Scott, the Western media is pro-Israel. They don't bring the voices of the Palestinians in their day-to-day mm-hmm. uh, news. But I do believe that things are changing with Generation Z taking over the social media platform and voicing the voice of those who have been brushed aside for so long. Mm-hmm. 
And I think, you know, the one of the things that seems to have to use this term like radicalized younger generations in support of Palestinian liberation is the just overwhelming fact of like violence against children. I mean, like it's it's I mean, the numbers are unbelievable and it's not numbers, it's lives, it's neighborhoods destroyed. Right. You're talking about more than 12000 people killed since October 7th, but thousands and thousands okay. of children who have done absolutely nothing who you know it's it's just it's it's abhorrent it's telling that israel wants to dispute this number because it knows that it's like abhorrent on its face that there's no disputing how 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 awful it is um arundhati roy um the anti-imperialist anti-colonial anti-colonialist author yes she wrote this um really powerful piece recently where she says the solution cannot be a militaristic one. It can only be a political one in which mm-hmm. Israelis and Palestinians live together or side by side in dignity with equal rights. The world must intervene. The occupation must end. Very true. Like that just puts it very, it, that, that is not complicated. That should not be complicated. Mm-hmm. But the question that I think is still complicated because it's about what is going to happen is you know how can palestine be free if a two-state solution so-called is not possible any longer because of israel's clear unwillingness to accept it to give up any sovereignty in the region right you you talked about the 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 writing into law of self-determination settlement and and hebrew is the national language you know How can Palestine become a state? Can it be a state like other states? What does autonomy look like in Palestine and how can it be achieved? Palestinians don't want autonomy. Palestinians want the right to self-determination. They want political rights. They want a country with clear borders. That's what they want. The global community must step in and take responsibility for the um, terror that they are supporting either directly or indirectly by staying silent. Less than two months ago, Netanyahu held up a map in front of everyone at the UN General Assembly. And this map completely ignored the presence of Palestinians. And in his speech, he didn't even mention Palestinians. So any talk of a two-state solution is merely a tactic to divert from the reality on the ground. How can Palestine be free? It, I don't know. I'm not a politician. But what I do know is that this oppression cannot go on like this. And the people who perpetrate it must be held accountable. His Palestinian historians writing about Palestine, we have Palestinian musicians writing songs about Palestine, uh, Palestinians in the diaspora ferociously proud of their grandmother's Palestinian food. There are Palestinian women holding online courses teaching Palestinian embroidery. And this gives me hope. People still call their daughters Yaffa and Cesaria, which are the villages their grandparents were kicked out of. And this has been going on for decades. Golda Meir once said the old palestinians will die and the young will forget 
I know that she is mistaken. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's beautiful. And you know, what I'm so grateful for is that like you're sharing this kind of cumulative knowledge of like experiencing this occupation directly, and just saying like that it cannot go on. It cannot go on like this. Um, that refusal I find so, yeah, so inspiring. So I really appreciate you making the time to talk to me today. Um, I know that you're you're juggling all kinds of things. Um, so thanks so much. No, thank you, Scott. I mean, like this was really, um, I really had to go deep and think and gather my thoughts.